Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and a few months ago, I had the pleasure of joining the trauma panel for the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto. Now, if you're from Western Canada like I am, you've probably heard of this EMU conference that's hosted by North York General each year. But for me, it was my first time attending, and I have to say I was really impressed with the caliber of expert presenters. I mean, I don't think I witnessed a single death by PowerPoint experience in the entire three days of the conference, which is really saying something. Anyway, I was able to obtain approval to share the audio from our trauma panel discussion here on the R&R Rounds podcast. It's a really cool look at the entire silo of trauma care from rural receiving department through to urban trauma team leader, intensivist, and trauma surgeon. Now at 45 minutes, this is a lot longer than our usual episode on this podcast, but I think you'll really enjoy it all the same. So thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm honored to be moderating this panel. I don't know how I became the person who has any, any control over what these trauma experts uh, are gonna speak to you about. Um, I brought my notes because in order to introduce this panel, um, I was unable to remember all of their accomplishments, um, so I have to read it out. Uh, so firstly, I'll introduce uh, Jonathan Wallace, who is our rural resuscitation juggernaut, uh, in his words, part hobo, uh, which I think comes <laughs> from the fact that he's worked at over 70 emergency departments in Canada and internationally, um, which he, he claims he's chosen to do. I don't think he's been pushed out of all of them. It's 70, so, so this is a man who knows exactly what your experience at your emergency department is because he's been at all of them. Uh, he's also done a residency in rural family, EM, GP anesthesia, and ultrasound fellowship. So has lots of knowledge across the board in trauma. Um, in terms of education, he's helped develop R&R Rounds. I'm sure many of you have listened to those, which is a monthly recess uh, sim program for rural and remote physicians. As well, he's recently created the R&R podcast, so discussing actual resuscitation cases. So make sure to, to listen to those for more of this information. Um, so he's really joining us today as the expert in managing trauma in that rural remote setting. Uh, next, we have Bork Tillman, who joins us from Sunnybrook as a critical care physician and trauma team leader. Uh, on the rare days, he's not doing both of those jobs. He's uh, completing his PhD in clinical epidemiology and healthcare research with a focus on equity and trauma care. Um, from when I speak with the residents, I haven't had the pleasure of working with Bork and Barb, uh, but I asked a few residents, and what he's known for is his excellence in clinical teaching, but more so for his comedic and fashion styling which I'm glad he brought to the stage. Uh, and last, but most certainly not least, is uh, Barb Haas, who is a uh, trauma surgeon and critical care physician at Sunnybrook. Uh, she's assistant professor at University of Toronto and as well a scientist at the Sunnybrook Research Institute uh, with a focus on trauma and particularly emergency surgery in older, older adults. Um, and when I spoke to the residents who have worked with Barb, the two words that kept coming up were inspiration and mentor. So. Very honored to have uh, this panel here today. So we'll jump right in. So we'll start with Jonathan because you're the first one receiving the patient. And I'm not gonna give you a specific case, I'm just gonna give you a broad, you've got an unstable, we'll say it's an MEC, unstable, hypotensive patient. You've received the EMS patch that they're gonna be coming to your center. In a small, you're in a rural remote center, what do you initially do to prepare for that patient? Um, you know, I think 
the biggest difference in resource limited locations is just acknowledging that we don't have the resources in house. And so if we've got the time, we want to try and get that going. So if you've got an OR team, bring them in. If you've got extra nurses or x-ray techs or whatever at home, bring them in because the more hands you have, the better. Beyond that, you're really proceeding the same way you would in any uh, emergency room um, up to that certain basic level of equipment. And then you run into problems like, oh, we don't have a CT scanner and we only have two units of blood or, or whatever. And so that's where you have to begin to cr get creative. So it's your typical you know, IVO2 monitors and ABCs and whatnot. But really trying to get that team organized and uh, maybe even anticipating the blood loss, which I think we'll get into shortly, cranking up the temperature in the room, getting the bear hugger out, and just trying to um, do everything you can to stabilize that patient and prevent blood loss would be the primary things I would suggest starting with. Okay. So you mentioned bleeding and hemorrhage, so we'll assume that our, our, this unstable hypotensive patient is so from, from hemorrhage, from blood loss. Um, so I'll, I'll ask you know, the experts in the panel who have access to all of the resources, if you have a clearly unstable hemorrhagic shock trauma patient, what are your initial steps? Sure, so I'll start here. I think the question you raise is the common question I get when we're teaching residents who come through or we have doctors practicing in the community who come to Sunnybrook to do some trauma is, okay, but how do I do this where I am? So I first think, well, what are we doing at Sunnybrook? And a lot of things are actually pretty similar. Yeah, we have a trauma team activation, but the idea is to get the extra set of hands. So it's protocolized, but it's the same thing that Jonathan has just recommended we do as well. The extra things we have is we're able to call for blood. So if someone comes in and they're in shock, I'm calling for blood. If they've been shot in the chest or basically anywhere between the knees to the head, I'm calling for blood beforehand because we have the luxury of being able to have sorry, O negative or O positive blood in the trauma bay with us. Aside from that, I'm ensuring that we have an ability to do the time-sensitive procedures, and this is what I talk to our trainees about as well. So when I say time-sensitive procedures, it's what things can we do in a trauma bay or in a resuscitation room in the emergency department that are gonna stop the patient from dying in the next five minutes so they can get to the next step, be the next step a transfer, or the next step an OR, or the next step a CT scanner. And at Sunnybrook for us, that means that we have a level one transfuser set up and ready, because I don't know how many of you have had the joy of setting up the level one, but it will always alarm at you. Um, so it takes a good five to 10 minutes to destroy it and get it working. And we also wanna make sure that we have a chest tube tray ready. In, when I work at Sunnybrook, I can assign a surgical resident to do it. When I was working community medicine, that would be me deciding, okay, what are the things that I can do as the sole physician right now with a single nurse helping? Well, a chest tube and binding the pelvis are two things that I can potentially do to stop bleeding or shock, so I'd assign myself to that. So it's all about what are the time-sensitive and high-priority tasks and getting those ready, regardless of being at Sunnybrook or being, I used to work in Newberry, Ontario. You know, I think, when we look at what people talk about on Twitter about trauma, you know, it's very dogmatic. Oh, it's got to be one to one to one. And, you know, we're going to come and slap you if you give any crystalloid. And, oh, pressors, you're killing the patient. I mean, 
those people don't work in somewhere that doesn't have a fully stocked blood bank and 20 people trauma team, right? The reality is two thirds of people in Ontario, and this is true across Canada, who are severely injured first get seen by people in this room who don't work at a trauma center. And you just gotta do the best that you can with what you have to get them to a trauma center to life-saving care. And no one is m more aware of how hard uh, that can be than you know the receiving surgeon who knows. Like you may not have a fully stopped blood bank. You don't have an OR. You have a surgeon who's an hour away and says, well, I do bariatric surgery. I'm not gonna come in for this. So you just need to maintain a blood pressure Stop the bleeding that you can see uh, or control. So that's, you know, a tourniquet that might be a pelvic binder, uh, reverse shock that you can. So that's your chest tubes and some sort of support. So if you have blood, great. If you don't have blood, you can give some, a little bit of crystalloid and some vasopressors, that's fine. No one's gonna come after you. Um, and the most important thing is activate your transfer early. We know that um, there's often a pressure to sell the patient to the trauma center. That's their problem, that's not your problem. An unstable patient following trauma, at least in Ontario, and again, this is true across the country, meets criteria for trauma center transfer. You should not be required to scan the patient. You should not be required to tell them their entire life story and their pediatric vaccinations. That patient needs to go. And we know that the biggest delay in these transfers is from arrival to phone call to get the patient out. So you really wanna assign someone, as soon as the patient hits the door and it's true, oh look, their blood pressure is 70, someone's calling for the ambulance, for the chopper, for the whatever, to get the patient out. Because the truth is there's nothing you can do if you don't have access to an OR. You gotta get that patient out as quickly as you can. And it's a them problem, it's not a you problem. <laughs> And what, for those patients that are unstable, so you've accepted the patient, you know, kindly, as, as we always do. Um, <laughs> we, we always do. And we're not Three the problem, it's the yeah. other guy. Uh, it's always the other guy. Um, what procedures do you think it's really important that somebody working at a, a rural center that's gonna be faced with these trauma alone are able to perform? What are the things that, you know, Jonathan mentioned, I think after Jonathan and Bork mentioned some of the, you know, certainly getting access, giving blood, uh, consideration for chest tubes, I think airway. Um, what things do community docs really need to kind of feel comfortable in terms of these, these rare things that they see but being able to intervene? Oh, you want me to tell? You want me to tell yes. what the city needs? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Perfect. So uh, it's the ABCs, right? Like you need, and, and then you have to remember too that your patient has to get there and they have to survive. And having done like aeromedical retrieval for a while, it's not as easy as it sounds. Like I know it's a black box, but like it's bloody dangerous being in an airplane with some unstable patient. You have maybe one assistant and uh, and no room to maneuver. You can't even stand up in the damn thing. So try and stabilize this person as best you can before that crew arrives and try and do it quickly so that when that crew arrives, they don't have to spend time doing stuff that you could have done 
and um, are able to then focus on getting that transfer, getting them onto their equipment, because we all know that takes about 45 minutes sometimes, and can get off, because time is of the essence. So good IV access, a secured airway, have them stable on a ventilator, and try and anticipate what sedation medications they're going to use, so that when the transport team arrives, they can just take the pumps and immediately continue the propofol fentanyl infusion, or, or whatever, whatever your transport crew uses. Um, obviously, if you need to do some sort of life-saving intervention, like a chest tube or whatever, you need to do that. But as we talked about yesterday, you know, you may have, oh, I guess it was in one of the smaller groups, but if you have a, uh, a hemothorax, it may not actually require the chest tube. And so it's worth talking to your transport team about that, and then you can reprioritize the things that are important, right? So that's kind of what I do. I try and do my best to have this patient all wrapped up in a nice bow so when the transport team arrives, and it's not about the city, I, I, I'm so far removed I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what the city wants, but uh, I, it's what the transport crew wants, and I kind of have a good idea of that, and that's secure airway, stable vital signs, a nice smooth sedation that they can continue on without having to retitrate things. That's what I would say. So I'd say the city wants like good public infrastructure, the TTC to be on time. <laughs> if you can do those things, my life is much easier. Um, but so I would agree, it's as I think as we're all highlighting, is it, it's super hard taking care of a sick trauma patient in the community and the interventions that are going to stop the bleeding often aren't available. So time is of the essence. And then I think about what are these sort of high value procedures that may, you may not do that often, a low event procedures. Thinking about Dr. Morgenstein's talk we just had about dealing with trachs, the things that you want to simulate in your mind. One of the procedures that I've had of a much lower threshold now is actually sticking in chest tubes. Um, over time, I realized, A, you don't get style points for someone dying without chest tubes, uh, and it's one of the things we can reverse. And thinking about someone who is truly in shock because of bleeding into their chest, the lung actually helps tamponade if the lung is up. If the lung is crushed and deflated, it's not going to push against that chest wall. They're just going to keep bleeding. If small venous bleed from some broken ribs, just going to keep on going. So those chest tubes can still be helpful. And the key procedures, I think, one is securing an airway. My threshold for intubating a patient for transfer is much different than my threshold for intubating a patient within a hospital. I vividly remember intubating a two-year-old on the side of a highway in the middle of a transfer. Um, my recommendation, don't do it. Um, it's very unpleasant. So I would rather do that before you go somewhere. Putting chest tubes in and rehearsing that in your mind. Even if you decompress the chest and you decompress it successfully, which doesn't always happen with needles, regardless if you put it in the second intercostal space, in the mid-axillary line. There's lots of debate. You'll see this on Twitter. Regardless, the angiocaths can kink off, uh, and they only temporarily work. So decompressing the chest is a high-value intervention. The other things are how do you get IV access? So many of these patients are so sick, you can't get an IV in right away. So having familiarity with an IO is another one of those procedures I think is really helpful. And tourniquets are back in style. I know initially when I was training, which isn't that long ago, I think, tourniquets were awful. They killed people. They killed arms. Stop doing it. Um, and as we've sort of moved on, and if you look at the Stop the Bleed program coming up from the United States that we're doing here, tourniquets can save a life. So being familiar with a tourniquet, because really, what is the bleeding you can treat without an OR? 
it's bleeding, you can see. And if you can't apply direct pressure or if you don't want to be in the back of a chopper in that little box throwing up, putting a tourniquet on it. Uh, and then it's the pelvis and the chest. The last skill, and it is a skill, is applying a pelvic binder. We do see lots of pelvic binders applied too high. And it's easy to make the mistake. You're very ramped up. This is a high acuity, high stress situation. So it's all about feeling for the GTs. It's lower than you think. Feel down there. Put the binder down there. And I don't care if the binder's a sheet. If it's a commercially available binder, it doesn't really matter. Binding the pelvis. And one thing that actually really helps close that pelvic volume is just take their toes and turn them in. And that helps make it a smaller volume because that's the goal here. So to really highlight those key procedures, airway management, chest tubes, binding the pelvis, placing an IO, and using a tourniquet. Those are the five skills I think are essential if you're going to be treating people who are severely injured. And as Barbara, as Dr. Haas said, most of you are gonna be seeing the severely injured patients because they don't directly present to us. I don't know, are there any other skills that you would say from the surgical side? No, I, I completely agree with everything you've said. Um, I think there are two common misconceptions out there which you should immediately delete from your mind. One is don't, you know, there's this whole idea that you shouldn't resuscitate through a lower extremity line because yada yada something pelvis. If you're not getting enough blood back through your IVC, I mean, you've got bigger problems. So don't fuss. It doesn't have to be in the arm. The IO can go in the leg. Uh, if you manage to put in a cordis, it can go in the femoral vein. It's completely fine to resuscitate through a lower extremity. And um, I, I find the IOs that go up here, they get dislodged, they're fussy, forget about it. Just use the legs. The second thing is, um, you know, if you see an arterial pumper, just put a snap on it. It is okay. I, you know, there's this whole thing that the surgeon's gonna come and like toilet paper your house. Like honestly, <laughs> if you save the guy's life by putting a snap, on the bleeding artery and some, how should I put this politely, jackass from a trauma center comes and says, oh, you crushed, like, just call me and I will deal with it. Like, <laughs> just stop the bleeding, they can fix it, there are grafts, it is fine. Um, and then I guess the last thing is, if there's like a destructive wound, um, the best thing to do to stop bleeding is just pack the crap out of it, just take a big cling, and just pack, 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 and put a lot of pressure on it. We do sometimes get patients who are transferred, especially with mangled extremities, um, where there's stuff on top, but don't be afraid to just pack inside the wound. Trust me, you're not gonna make it any worse, um, and you'll probably stop the bleeding. So don't worry about what the next guy's gonna say. Uh, you, they don't know your job. Do what you need to do to get the patient out in one piece. And Barb, as a non-surgeon, I've heard about these things like called Mirocell and, and whatnot. Would you consider it acceptable for us to like line these wounds with that before we pack with gauze? Or do you have a preference? I, I don't, you know, personally, I, we don't have any fancy stuff in our trauma oh. bay. And, you know, the real surgeons make fun of us because in, in the OR, all I do is just take a bunch of packs and like shove them at the liver and hope that it <laughs> stops. And it usually does. I mean, my job is really easy. So don't, don't overthink it. Just something that's not gonna get lost so long. If you need multiple, just tie them to each other. Make sure an end is hanging out. And just, pa it's, it's the pressure. Yeah. It, you know, if you have something fancy and you, you're used to using it, you go ahead. But 
just really tightly packing it often is sufficient. Yeah. And that's the takeaway from today is the emergency physician's job is very hard and the trauma surgeon's job is very easy. So if you're gonna remember one thing, that's, that's the message. It's sadly true. I only need to know one <laughs> medical problem. It's bleeding. <laughs> Not that hard. So chest tubes come up a lot as a you know skill that all physicians, trauma trauma team leaders, are not uh, sometimes have some discomfort with. Um, any tips from you know anybody in the panel? You've all had lots of experience um, for success or or pitfalls. You know the ones that come in chest tubes that maybe weren't as successful. So I'd say the the two sort of keys that helped me one. This, this is not a cosmetic procedure, make the cut big. Uh, I commonly see trainees or chest tubes that have ended up in armpits. Uh, they have these very tiny cuts and you need to get a tube and a finger in there at the same time to make sure it goes in the right place. So make it big. If it's less than an inch and a half, um, maybe your hands are just much smaller than mine, but I, I'm a little skeptical and this is a, a fairly emergent procedure, so you're trying to do things quickly. So one is make it a big cut, and that probably is gonna fix 90% of your problems. The second thing is the spleen or liver tube, uh, and that's because counting ribs is hard. Uh, you gotta get past <laughs> the number three, and like I'm done after three. It's trauma uh, surgeon stuff. <laughs> yeah, like it's real hard. It's A, B, C, one, two, three, and then you start singing. Uh, Where is rib one? I mean, that's the yeah, real question. Yeah, like I don't know. No one knows. Uh, but tend to air a bit harder. We have lots of different landmarks you can try and use, but human bodies change the way they look. So you can use where the axillary hair ends, except people shave their armpits. You can use where the nipple is, except people have tissue. It's going to be difficult. Sometimes I just stick a hand in their armpit and at the bottom of my hand is probably roughly where I'm going to go. The, the general approach I use though is I'm gonna air a bit higher than a bit lower. I've only seen one chest tube too high and it didn't cause any problems, it just looked real funny. Uh, and I've seen many, many chest tubes too low. So I think the most important things are make the hole big so you can get tube and finger in there and then you know where the tube's going and err on the side of being a bit higher. Those are the two things that have really helped me. Um, again, agree with almost <laughs> everything you've said. Um, the two key moves for me are one, your finger needs to be in the chest to confirm that you're in the chest. So you pop in, and again, people try to dissect the muscles between the ribs. I'm not that strong. It's literally just a pop and like stretch with both hands. Uh, and you wanna put your finger in and feel the inside of the chest and feel the, feel the lung. It feels like the tip of a dog's nose for those of you who enjoy <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, we're often taught to put an instrument on the end of our chest tube and then like put it in with a clamp. I don't, a, I don't even, I don't do that, and I, I recommend against it. I put it, the plastic on my finger, and I pop it in with my finger. Number one, it prevents you from accidentally tunneling subcutaneously, which happens a lot, and you have much better control, and you know you're in the chest. And you know, if it's in the fissure, if it's nobody cares. Again, you just have to get it in the chest, and the last hole has to be in the chest, and you've won the you've won the competition. So I, I personally use the uh, clamp to keep my shoes dry, and I put it in with my finger, and, and you feel the chest tube going into the chest, between the ribs, and I, put, and I can kind of flip it upwards and I know that where I am. And that's how I do all of my chest tubes, um, and I would recommend that approach. 
Yeah, and I agree. You see, um, you know, a lot of the time when we're teaching residents to do it, the trouble they encounter is making that hole, you know, have their finger in the hole, and then when they go to put the chest tube in using the clamp, then you lose that track. And it's actually much easier to lose that track than you think it would be. So I certainly, once my finger's in there, I want to keep that, that space open and then just exactly as, as you mentioned, using your finger to guide your tube in. I think that's a great I'd great also emphasize one thing that you said there is when you pop in, the two hands on the Kelly and reefing open, um, that's the only way I make the hole big enough as well. Uh, I see lots of people try and do it with their thumb and their middle finger. Um, my hand's not that strong. You're not a rock climber. No, no, I'm not. I've not gone up to the top. I haven't fallen off in syncope. Like, no, none of that's happened to me. But yeah, two hands and just reef it open. Uh, which is why ketamine is your friend and their friend, but uh, really get that pleural space open so you don't lose that track when you try and put that chest tube in. So the case where the patient's hypotensive and bleeding and needs to be transferred quickly, you know, that's a fairly easy, what we call cell. Um, what cases come to the trauma bay that you say, you know, I wish this patient had been here earlier, or you know, the, this is somebody that we should be seeing more of, and why aren't they sending those patients in? What are the ones we're kind of missing trauma care for? So this is my, uh, this is like my passion in life. Everyone can recognize the 20-year-old who's been shot. You go to a trauma center, but the reality is the data says if you have a severe injury, your probability of surviving is 25% higher if you go to a trauma center, even if you don't need surgery right? Especially if you have conditions that make you more likely to have a problem. So if you're older, if you're immunosuppressed, um, if you're on an anticoagulant, if you're pregnant, the patients that are missed are the ones that are actually hemodynamically stable. You get them through a scanner. They clearly don't need surgery. They've you know, got a small subdural. They have a flailed chest and a broken ankle. And what ends up happening is that the doc calls the neurosurgeon and they're like, no, nah, doesn't need surgery. And you call the orthopedic surgeon and say, no, nah, doesn't need surgery. And these patients get admitted to your place when actually because of their polytrauma, they actually would have benefited from being transferred. And the data suggests we particularly miss two groups of people. One is women. So uh, women are consistently less likely to get trauma center care for their severe injuries in Ontario, and this has been true for decades, and older adults, and particularly frail older adults. Uh, and again, there's this idea that maybe they want to stay close to home, da, da, da. You know, when we talk to older adults, they say, I want to live and I want to go home. I want to be able to have a good functional outcome. And we know that trauma centers are more likely to be able to offer that because of our links to rehab and our interprofessional teams. So, the patient doesn't have to be bleeding and the patient does not need to have surgery to benefit from transfer. They just have to have a severe injury. Um, and the best way to sell that is to refer to the data and refer to the guidelines. Hey, this patient has severe poly, you know, polytrauma. This patient needs to go to you. And don't talk to the subspecialties, talk to your trauma team leaders or the trauma surgeon. That's our job to advocate for these patients. So I would agree with everything I was just said there. Looking at this from when, and I'll, I want to hear your opinion as well, when I worked in the community, is this is the hard sell. These are the patients you call, and the, especially if you talk to the specialist, they're like, I know, they don't need surgery. Why you bother me? It's 2 in the morning. Please just be quiet. Um, so things that help. 
One is starting with the, the trauma team leader as opposed to starting with the subspecialists. I've, I've been the third call for many different patients. The, I talked to neurosurgery, I talked to spine, I talked to ortho, now I'm calling you. That's exhausting. That's exhausting for you, it's exhausting for everyone involved. So if they have multiple systems, start with trauma. And at least in Ontario, through the system we use, we can bring in the other specialists. So we have those links to pull them in. If we're like, eh, maybe this is just for neurosurgery, not for a trauma system. But start with trauma. That's the first part that makes it a bit easier. And then knowing a bit of the literature to quote that, as, as our trauma program is becoming more mature, uh, the trauma team leaders accepting this do appreciate this evidence. But at least my experience in the past is when you're getting some of the older TTLs, when you're getting people who haven't done particularly trauma fellowships, um, they may not be as familiar with this literature and they say there's no need for surgery, we don't need them. And that's a very doctor-specific way of looking at triage when really we're looking at triage in the trauma system as what can the system, what can the interprofessional team, what can the links with rehab do for this patient? So I think it's A, start with trauma, not with the subspecialists, and B, if it's someone you're like, you know, I'm pretty worried about, it's sort of saying this is what the evidence shows and having that discussion. That, those are the two things I use to help sell. But I, I want to hear, this is, I haven't been in the community for about five years, so I'd be interested in where yeah. things are at now. I think it really depends on what jurisdiction you're working in. And I gave up my license in Ontario in 2009, so I will defer to your advice for Ontario. Um, what I'll tell you is it, it completely depends. And even in that jurisdiction, it depends on who you're getting on the phone and how, you know, what mood they're in and whatnot. But I'll tell you, there are places out there where it's really easy. I currently live in Alberta, and let me try and get the terminology here. I am, I am a non-cis Albertan, meaning my license says Alberta, but I don't feel like I'm an Albertan. Don't tell Jason <laughs> Kenny though. Um, but, but to its credit, the provincial transport system like Critical in Alberta is like out of this world in terms of everything else I've ever seen. Um, and I have, I, I've been there for about five years now, and I have never had an issue with trying to convince somebody that I should take a patient. Sometimes they're like, oh yeah, you know, this is a urological problem, so you know, I'm a psychiatrist, you should call urology. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, and, and, and I think the other fundamental thing, I, I spent a lot of my time, in, or I did spend a lot of my time in BC and, and now Alberta. In BC, at least on Vancouver Island, we ran our hospitals at like 120% capacity. So there was never any room to admit. And in Alberta, COVID aside, I feel like we run our hospitals like 85% capacity. And so it's so much easier for the system to say, yeah, this is a trauma, like it needs, it belongs to us. So, you know, I'm not trying to make comparisons, trying to tell you that it really depends on the jurisdiction. And, uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. And you have to adapt your cell according to the system. And my cell skills have atrophied because now I live in Alberta. <laughs> And, and I would just add, you know, just because the last guy said no doesn't mean you were wrong, right? Like we get, we'd learn that, oh, well, they, they didn't take this polytrauma, so I, w I must be an idiot and that's not an appropriate transfer. People are going to tell you stupid things all the time and doesn't mean you were wrong. Again, severe injury, polytrauma, they need to go to a trauma center. And if someone says no to that, then that's on them, that's not on you. And you should not change your practice because that happens. 
And I think the comment, um, even when you said severe injury polytrauma, it can actually be moderate injury polytrauma. Yeah. You know, a few rib fractures, a, you know, with a small pulmonary contusion, a wrist fracture and facial fractures in an yeah. older adult. Probably no intervention for any of those, but a really difficult man patient to manage in the community and will do better with the trauma resources. And, so. and quite frankly, an older adult with multiple rib fractures, that in and of itself is a transfer. Those patients have incredibly high mortality. They should go to a trauma center. They should not go to the medicine ward at your yeah. place. Multiple ribs, old guy, call me. That's the end. <laughs> so we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, so I just want to give each of our, our panelists a moment. You've already had a, a number of really good pearls, but if there's anything uh, you want to say to the audience before we move on to questions. Jonathan? I would like to mention with bleeding, I think that's our biggest exposure in resource limited areas. And um, if, I, if I may take one minute Please. just to talk about the triad of death. And if you've never heard of that before, it's, it was a concept I wasn't familiar with until That was I, my other name for the panel. I, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a concept I didn't uh, encounter until I got to anesthesia. But basically, it's the physiological causes, contributors to bleeding to death. And they are hypothermia, which we know how to deal with. We had a presentation on that yesterday. Acidosis, which we know how to deal with. And it's not just, hey, add an amp of bicarb. Like you had to need to control the airway and ventilate them properly with calibrated blood gases and whatnot. It takes a lot of work, but doable for sure. And the third thing is coagulopathy. And that's where in rural communities we are screwed because we've got two units of pack cells and no platelets and no FFP and no cryo and no cell saver. Um, this person is going to bleed to death. So you have to get on top of those physiological factors fast, crank that temperature, get the bear hugger out, remind yourself, keep this patient warm, manage their acidosis or protect them from acidosis and stop that bleeding. Because once those clotting factors are gone, they're not coming back until they arrive at these guys' shop, right? Yeah, that's a great point, thank you. Yeah, I think that's, that's incredibly important and highlights how, how important it is to transfer as quickly as you can as it gets worse over time. I think the, one of the things I've learned is ensuring that you act quickly as opposed to it's, it's the 40-70 rule where if you have 40% of the information, it's probably time to make a decision. If you have more than 70% of the information, you've waited too long. So waiting for someone to die is probably not the good time to do the chest tubes. Same thing as waiting for the systolic to be 70, probably not the time to wait for the TXA. So it's getting the necessary information, which tends to be pretty limited in trauma. It's they're in car crash, they're hypotensive, here they are. You're like, oh, okay. And proceeding with life-saving interventions while simultaneously gathering information. And that's different than a lot of other medicine where we think we're going to investigate, diagnose, treat. Trauma tends to be treat and figure out what was wrong with them. And that's probably the biggest thing I've sort of gained appreciation seeing more and more trauma patients, is you want to intervene while there's still a chance to reverse the situation, as opposed to having all your clotting factors gone, then intervene, or having cardiac arrest occur, then intervene. So intervene early in these really sick patients and give all the TXA. We give two <laughs> grams up front uh, at our shop now, uh, just give the TXA. Uh, you, you, you two steal all my good points. Listen, 
Call early if they're in shock or their GCS is low after trauma. You don't need to have all the tests done. The biggest barrier to a life saved is the time it takes to get them to the OR and just call. Just call right away. You don't need any. As they roll through the door, their blood pressure is low, their GCS is, or their GCS is low, somebody should be calling for a transfer. And while we, we often talk about the unstable patient as the, the stressful one, if you look at the system level, the lives you're actually going to save are to recognize, hey, this person has a severe injury and they should not be in my hospital. Let me get them to Sunnybrook or uh, Hamilton or wherever. Um, and so taking a bit of time to, th to be familiar with, you know, how do we define a severe injury and what is a severe injury in your jurisdiction and recognizing those people should go, I think in your career will actually be the most lives saved because these patients currently are not being transferred. And the right, what you should hear from the trauma center is, thank you very much for recognizing this patient needs a transfer. We look forward to seeing them. And if you're not, that's a them problem. That's not a you problem. And you have, you, you just keep plugging along until they figure out how to do this right. Great, thank you very much. Um, so Yashi, I'll, I'll let it out to the audience for any questions. Perfect. So there's quite a few questions from the audience. Um, there are a few questions about chest tubes. So specifically, what size chest tube are you using? Is there a rule for pigtails in this case in trauma patients? So the evidence is suggesting it doesn't actually matter what size you use. Use the, like, stick out your hand, grab the chest tube, that's the right size. Uh, so it's whichever one you can get. It's the same thing people ask me, what drug should I intubate with? I'm like, the ones you know. Yes. It's not time to learn a new skill. It's time to use what you're comfortable with. The evidence also suggests that pigtails probably do work in these patients. I don't like putting pigtails in. I'm far more comfortable putting in a surgical chest tube. But if all you've ever put in is pigtails, then, like I said, not a time to learn a new skill. But we'll see. So it's come back in five years, we'll answer this better. But in stable patients, in stable patients, it seems that a pigtail is equivalent. Uh, we don't have the answer for unstable patients, but again, you're not saving their life by evacuating the hemothorax. You're saving their life by relieving attention or that sort of thing. So if you've never put in a chest tube, I would just say talk it through with the person you're organizing the transfer with. I can't, you know, there's not one answer, but have a conversation and, and see what's safest and most appropriate in that situation. I can say, like, Barbara here has walked a community through doing a thoracotomy. We're happy to help you get through a chest tube as well. And you all have the skills to do this. Um, so we're here to support. I mean, if a surgeon center. can do it, is it really that hard? <laughs> Are you sure you're a surgeon? She's <laughs> an emergency doctor undercover. No. She, ta she takes many spleens out. My understanding that's is that's right. what surgery is. So yes, she's a surgeon. <laughs> There's also um, a question asking you to comment on what sedation medications would be best to use in unstable patients who are intubated or being transferred. Ketamine. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, she is an emergency doctor. Um, how much time have you got? I mean, ketamine is a great choice, um, and, uh, and, it, and it's simple, and you don't have to think about it, and it's probably the most hemodynamically stable option we have. Um, but um, you know, I'm happy to reach into my drug box and use other things too, but it really depends on your patient and what, you, what, your, what your transport team is comfortable with, you know? 
Because if, if you start up morphine midazolam, great choice, and they don't have that, they're not comfortable with it, then there's gonna be a 20 minute washout as they switch them over to whatever their cocktail of choice is, right? So it all depends, but ketamine's a great choice. I think that's so important if you use what you're comfortable with. The, the only answer I ever give strictly is a paralytic is not a sedative. Um, mm. I get sent people on paralytic infusions without any sedative or analgesia on board. So use a sedative, but yeah, I, I don't care if it's midazolam, propofol, ketamine, fentanyl. It's the drug you're most comfortable with. The dose is gonna make it the drug. Yes, I use a lot of ketamine. I also use a lot of propofol. So it's, it's what you are most comfortable with because you'll understand how that drug works. You'll understand how to titrate that medication. So I'll just ask you one more question before lunch. So um, there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, talking to TTLs from, commu from community hospitals. And I know that you chatted a little bit about that already. But just any general advice to people who are having difficulty, um, either from a northern site transferring down south, um, even from a community site that might be one hour away from a trauma center, who are having difficulty just conveying the, the polytrauma or um, the real severity of the patient. My advice would be remember there's always more than one receiving facility and more than one receiving specialist. So if you're not getting anywhere with location A, call location B. And location B may say, no, they're quite right. Or they may say, no, they're crazy. Let me get them on the call and tell them. And then you have a neurosurgeon telling a neurosurgeon what an idiot he is. And I can stay out of it, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, sorry, he or she. Uh, no, but, the uh, idiots are all men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I think one uh, thing in receiving calls that comes up is sometimes you want the information up front about why the patient needs to be transferred and I'll sometimes be pre presented with a fairly lot of details about a case without really kind of knowing what are the key injuries. So I think the, the immediate thing needs to be, you know, I have this patient that I think needs transferred to a trauma center who has these injuries so that already you're sort of framing around this is why they need transfer in the same way you do any of your, your consults. The other thing is not every, in Ontario, via critical call is a, I need to transfer this patient. It's also sometimes a call out for expertise in trauma. So I've taken lots of calls where we discuss the case and we discuss, do they need particular imaging? Could they be imaged there um, before they come? Do they need to come to a transfer center? Um, and we're happy to have those conversations too. So if you're not sure, call, discuss the case. And there are times somebody will call and will recommend doing a scan and then assessing. And that's not a pushback, we don't believe you. You know, it's sometimes just a resource thing. This patient sounds stable. Do you have access to scanning there? I'd like to get more information to clarify. Do they need to come when they need to come? Um, so it's a conversation you're having with a, you know, somebody who has expertise in trauma. It's not just a, I'm trying to sell your patient and you're, you're mean and have a wall up and how do I, you know, find the the open hole and get through that. So just be clear about what injuries the patient has up front. And then exactly what the panel was talking before about advocating, you know, I'm worried about this patient. I know the data shows they would do better at your hospital. I've exhausted the resources of what I have to care for them. You know, we hear that. That's a clear, a clear message. So I, I would agree with everything. There's two parts I would add to this. One, it, it is very useful to have a, a clear conversation. So. I don't need to know how many times the car rolled over. I get lots of car descriptions. <laughs> I'm not a mechanic. I take my car to the mechanic. Uh, so that's, that's unfortunately not useful information, and we are triaging. So just 
blunt and penetrating is probably the most useful part. Vitals and why you're calling. That, that is really helpful. Because uh, we will listen for different information when you're saying, no, I'm calling looking for advice because I don't think they need to come. Nine times out of 10, I take that patient anyways. <laughs> or I'm calling because this patient I think needs to come. That's both are completely appropriate calls. That's the whole idea behind critical calls for emergent advice and transfer. And then letting us know the vitals. Uh, getting the vitals at the very end sometimes leads to great surprises, so present those up front. The other part which seems to be underlying this is having repeat turndowns. And that's more of a systems as opposed to an individual issue. And that's not something you can fix in a phone call. That is where it's important to have the people who are your chiefs of your department, the people who make decisions working with the trauma system. So there's the Ontario Trauma Network in Ontario that you can work through to better understand either why is the trauma center continually saying no, how is your role and your system's role there. So if these things become systemic issues, you don't fix systemic issues at two in the morning. Uh, you just get frustrated at two in the morning. So that's taking back and working through the system, which sounds incredibly infuriating. I'm so glad I'm not on these panels. But it's at least flagging these so that there's an understanding of what's happening so that can be brought forward by the people who are your chiefs and are looking into these areas. If you are in Ontario, you should, if you haven't, Google trauma center consultation guidelines. Uh, there's actually a consensus in this province about who should at least have a conversation. I find it helpful to say, you know, to hear like facts, like this patient meets this criterion. And it also helps you sort of organize in your mind who needs to go. Two, you know, I, I have friends who work in other catchment areas and they're like, so how do I manage this like exsanguinating spleen in the ICU? And I'm like, what the, why don't you just transfer them? And they're like, they've said no. So, you know, sometimes you can't go to another hospital. And, and again, as Burke has said, that's an escalation thing. And three, know that like my trauma ward, my inpatient ward, I think the average age is about 60, less than 10% of the patients need surgery. Most of what I do is organize rehab, have family meetings, uh, you know, restart their diabetes medication. That's trauma in 2022. And so, you know, just organize in your mind that it's, those are the patients that should go. They, if you're being repeatedly rejected, that's really a systems problem that needs to be escalated. And you're not the person who's, who's in the wrong in this scenario. Um, and just know that there are people working towards helping you get these patients to the right place. Um, and you know, you guys are at the core of the trauma system. Most trauma patients first see you. So like, use that to empower yourselves and stand up for the patient and for yourselves. You shouldn't be having this much problem getting the patient out. Right. Well, thank you to the audience uh, here, out there, uh, for all the great questions, and uh, a huge thank you to the excellent panelists for taking the time to share their expertise with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The On Our Rounds podcast is free, open access medical education. You were just listening to the 2022 Emergency Medicine Update Trauma Panel. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes. For more clinical pearls, visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.